good morning. There's a full house today, and we are thankful to God for that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up and turn them to Acts 12. We're going to start in verse 1 and read 19 verses of Acts 12. Uh, I have met so many visitors today, and that is so wonderful. Um, praise God. We are so thankful that you're visiting with us, and, uh, and uh, our, our people would love to get to know you. We would love to get to know you. And one of the easiest ways we can get to just know your name and maybe a contact is beside the giving box in the back, there are these little cards. They say, let's get acquainted. Uh, maybe a little more than I'm trying to get acquainted with you. They ask for like your social security number and those kind of, I'm just kidding. Um, but they ask for a lot of information. If you would just write down your name and your a good contact, maybe that's an email or a phone number and drop that in that giving box. We would love to make contact with you and uh, get to know you and have dinner with you and, uh, and just see how God's working in your life and where he has you on this journey with him. And we'd love for you to join us as we journey with him. And so uh, we're excited about guests. Uh, we, we love people. And so I hope you've been also enjoying this journey we've been taking through the book of Acts as we're 12 chapters now uh, in deep, and it's, uh, it's amazing every week, in my opinion, to step back in time and settle into this uh, incredible moment we have uh, written by Luke for us to read about the early church forming, uh, finding their feet, beginning new churches like we saw last week, and wrestling with doctrine as they seek to grasp all the many implications of this new covenant that they are now a part of, which has been inaugurated by the blood of Christ. Uh, it's been amazing to see different stories about the masses coming to faith, but also individuals like the Ethiopian eunuch or uh, Cornelius. But in my opinion, the coolest part about this movement is that Jesus is doing all of it through ordinary individuals who are placing their trust in an extraordinary God. They're relying on him to empower them as they faithfully give witness about who he is and what he's done. And the reason I believe this is so incredible, the most incredible part of the book of Acts in my opinion, is because we know that this movement will continue <laughs> for the next 2,000 years. His Holy Spirit will empower generation after generation to rise up and be bold witnesses for the King of Kings who is coming again. And I love that we as Grace Fellowship are a part of this movement. I just want you to think for a moment that the people that we are reading about in the book of Acts that God is using we will meet in eternity. And we will rejoice about all the mountains we saw God move in our time on this earth. Our short time. Before we jump into our text this morning, I want to prime you a little bit uh, about what we're about to read. In today's text, we uh, see an important component of this movement of God that I'm talking about. Uh, the component that we see in, in today's text is prayer. 
Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen prayer in the book of Acts. In fact, it was uh, one of uh, the things, one of the rhythms of this early church. It was one of the things that Jesus passed down to his disciples that was very, very important. And obviously, they had continued passing it down to those who they were discipling. The early church, as seen in Acts, depended upon prayer. And so that's what we're going to see in our passage today, so we'll let it speak for itself. If you want to pick up with me, Acts chapter 12, verse 1. I'm reading out of the ESV. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread and When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the other brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then... He went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Father, would you please, by your Holy Spirit, move in us today. God, help us to see the tremendous gift you've given us in prayer. And God, help us not to neglect it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 
I'm currently reading a book that probably very few of you in here uh, have ever read before. It's called The Five Views of Psychology and Christianity. Sounds like a thriller, right? Uh, there's a section in the book uh, called, When Psychological Science Challenges Faith. And the writer of this particular view uh, shares how his early assumptions about prayer being effectual have now been reconsidered and changed. He cites a few research studies and uh, where prayer has been put to the test and found to cause no change. A few of these studies include a 1997 experiment on intercessory prayer in the treatment of alcohol abuse and dependence, found no measurable effect of intercessory prayer. A 2001 Mayo Clinic study of 799 coronary care patients offered a simple result. As delivered in this study, intercessory prayer had no significant effect on medical outcomes. A 2005 Duke University study of 848 coronary patients found no significant difference in clinical outcomes between those prayed for and those not prayed for. A 2006 Harvard Medical School prayer experiment also showed no effects from three different groups of coronary bypass patients. One being prayed for, the other not, the other being prayed for and told that they're praying, being prayed for. So, the research concludes, the results say that prayer is not effectual. However, the writer of this section of the book concludes that this doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. He says, we're told to pray and give thanksgiving and confess our dependence. But we just shouldn't expect God to answer our prayers for the sick to be healed or the lost to be found, or people to be released from death row in prison. Doesn't this seem to be in contradiction with our text this morning? I mean, Luke makes it pretty clear in verse 5, after he tells us Peter is in prison, but earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. Now, it's easy for us to pick on writers from books and experiments done at Harvard, but I want us to ask ourselves the question this morning. Do we believe prayer is effectual? Meaning, in the words of John Piper, it causes things to happen that would not have happened if you would not have prayed. Or, for you MacArthur fans, Johnny Mac says it like this. It's hard to argue with James when he says that the prayer of a righteous man produces much. So I'll ask again. Do we believe prayer causes things? Do we believe prayer produces things? Or as I've entitled today's sermon, is prayer effectual? 
You know, if we were to sit down and have a conversation like we did in our men's ministry meeting today, we would find out from everyone in here that we've all done it. We've all asked God for fill in the blank. And it may have felt like he has never answered that prayer or gave us a loud and clear no to that prayer. Or maybe we've prayed and prayed and prayed for something to happen and it still hasn't happened So we just stop praying. Now, for those who don't believe in a sovereign God, things like this might cause them to lose faith. They might not be able to reconcile what they've seen happen even as they've prayed against it. And therefore conclude that prayer doesn't work. God isn't listening. Or he doesn't care. Or worse, maybe he's not even real. But for those of us who do believe in God's sovereign rule and reign over all things, we don't go in that direction. Amen? But we go in another direction that is, in my opinion, equally detrimental. And that's toward a fatalistic prayer life. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that we've become so comfortable with our understanding of God's sovereign will that we have essentially neglected our role of prayer. So we may toss up a prayer here and there, but we know God's going to do what he's going to do. Church, I think both of these thought processes are extremely unhelpful and unbiblical. And that's why I want to spend our time this morning showing you how I believe from the word that prayer is effectual. Meaning, it causes things to happen that wouldn't have happened if you didn't pray. And it produces much. In our text this morning, we're told that James has been beheaded. This is one of Jesus' inner three. This was John, the beloved's brother, the second son of thunder, who is now killed at the hands of a wicked, power-hungry, politically motivated ruler named Herod, or better known historically as Agrippa I. Bruce is going to preach more on him next week, so I won't say anything else about him other than he has killed James. He saw it please the people, and now he's imprisoned Peter. And we can safely assume that his plan is to bring Peter out after Passover and kill him for the people as well. But, verse 5, the church is praying. (laughs) Luke makes sure to mention this point because it's extremely important for what he's trying to get across. We're then told the details about Peter's rescue. An angel of the Lord stood next to him. A light shone into the cell. The angel wakes him up by striking him, tells him to get dressed and head out. We're told that Peter's not even aware of what's happening. But when he comes to, in verse 11, he says this, I am sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. We're then told that he goes to the house of Mary, who is the mother of John Mark. Check out the end of verse 12. 
where many were gathered together and were, what? Praying. He knocks on the gate, and a servant girl, Rhoda, comes in, and she's so excited with joy at seeing Peter, she doesn't even let him in. She runs back inside and tells everybody, guys, guys, you're not going to believe this. And what do we expect? They don't believe her. Can you imagine? Shh, Rhoda, stop that nonsense. We're praying for Peter to be released. This is important, Rhoda. Uh, 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 he is released. Rhoda, 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 silly girl. That's just his angel. Like, we'll find out one day in heaven, but you got to wonder, who made that comment? <laughs> like, we know their new covenant theology is not fully formed yet, but come on, guys. It's his angel just wandering the streets. But back to Peter, who just walked, who walked up and out of prison where his shackles literally fell off. And we see that gates are opening right up for him as he's on the way to John Mark's mother's house. He is now locked out of her house, cannot get in, and continues knocking. And when Rhoda finally gets them to check it out, they are all absolutely amazed. So he has to quiet them, we're told. And he proceeds to share the story with them. He tells them, get the word to James. Now this isn't James who had just died, rather it's the brother of Jesus. We're told the next day uh, comes and Peter's not found in jail and Herod does what? He's infuriated. He puts the guards to death. Now I want to ask us a question. What caused Peter to be released from prison? Answer? The prayers. The intercessory prayers of the church on his behalf. The sovereign God of the universe who controls all things heard their prayer and chose to make it happen. According to history, Peter will live another 20 years or so. And I believe that the way Luke writes this section is intended to show us the hopelessness of Peter's situation. I think all the detail we get about uh, him being, uh, or James being beheaded and him in prison with guys, literally 16 soldiers, four every six hours, a new four would rotate through, and they, two of them would chain themselves to him. Two of them would stand outside the door. Why do we get all this information? Because Luke is trying to get across the point, there's no hope for this man. None. But the church was praying for him. <laughs> Luke is intentionally showing us that prayer is effectual. It causes things to happen. It produces much. So here's what I've prayed and I feel led to do. Is to spend the rest of the time we have by showing you just how effectual prayer is. And I want to do this by actually drawing back to our profession of faith that we went over this morning. We went over two parts, actually three parts that are called the Lord's Prayer. And just in these parts, we can uh, see how prayer brings forth an effect on our hearts, an effect on our minds, and an effect on God's mission. So don't 
miss this. What I'm putting forth this morning to you is that when we pray, change is taking place in your heart, in your mind, and in God's mission. That's what's happening. So let's begin with our heart. When you pray, you speak to who? God. Good, you're still here. You're coming before a holy and infinite God. Church, he's not your buddy or your pal. He's not your sidekick. He is God. The incredible privilege we have of prayer is almost made a mockery of today in the church. We have the Old Testament showing us what it's like to come into the presence of God. It's serious. It's nothing to play with. Or take lightly. In fact, it could only happen once a year. The priest going into the Holy of Holies and offering up prayers and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But now, Jesus Christ has torn the veil on behalf of the people and given them complete access to the Father himself. And he has become our high priest. We can come to him all the time. And let our requests be made known to God. But here's the thing, church. It's still serious. Like, this is still God we are approaching in prayer. Many think they can come before him with uh, unconfessed or hidden sin in their heart. And they're wrong. God will not be mocked. God is not any less holy in the New Testament as he was in the Old Testament. God never changes. So in order to come to God in prayer, we come letting it be known to him and ourselves, you are holy. It, it, hallowed be your name. Literally, what we're saying there is make your name holy. And what does that mean? Make your name holy. It means as I come into his presence, I am acknowledging that God makes his name holy. And so as his holiness shines on my heart, it brings forth the question, is there anything here that shouldn't be here? Is there anything that I'm hiding before him as I'm entering into his presence in prayer? Is there any wickedness that I'm trying to cover up or forget about? I'll never forget the prayer that I prayed eight years ago when I first began ministry. I was in a church service uh, like this and I'm praying and as I'm praying, uh, God through his Holy Spirit revealed some wickedness. And sin in my past that I hadn't confessed. He showed me that things needed to be reconciled in my relationships with others. And what happened was my stomach began to turn in knots. But it was pretty clear that if I wanted to continue interceding and continue coming into his presence and continue walking with him, then this was not optional. It had to be taken care of. God has done these types of things in my life as I approach his throne in prayer over and over and over and over in my walk with him. David prays in Psalm 51, create a clean heart in me, O God. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that it's the pure in heart that will what? See God. So you don't and you can't come to God in true prayer without his holiness changing your heart. It can't happen. You can't pray to the God of the universe who is holy beyond imagination and your heart not be changed and affect that would not have happened if you would not have prayed. Hence, effectual prayer. The prayer that we pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ is effectual. Look at the effect it has on our heart for salvation. What does the scripture say? Those that believe in their heart and confess with their mouth will be what? Saved. But also the effect that it has on our heart in transforming it for sanctification. I can guarantee you that the people in this room, in this church, in Grace Fellowship, that are closest to God, is the ones who spend a whole lot of time with him in prayer. That's who it is. Why? Because in that prayer, God is changing their heart to be more in line with his own. So prayer is effective in changing our hearts. In Jeremiah 17, a passage where Jeremiah goes into great detail about our hearts, before the Lord, he says that God not only searches the heart, but he what? Tests the mind. And this is your second point. Prayer is effective in changing our minds. Now, Romans 12, 2 is a super popular passage. It tells us to not be conformed to the world, but rather be transformed, which literally means changed into a different form by the renewal of your what? Mind. Now we often hear this passage followed up with being told that God's word renews our mind. And I would give a hearty amen to that. As long, caveat, as it's prefaced with the understanding that God's word will renew our minds when it's coupled with an appetite for prayer to that God of the word. You see, God's word minus prayer equals some of the meanest people on the face of this planet. And I know you might stutter for a second and go, whoa, did he really say that? Is he serious? Absolutely. Biblical and world history tell us that. God, when God is not shaping our hearts and minds in prayer, then you know what we will use his word for? A weapon to destroy people. You don't believe this? That's exactly what God's people, the Jews, did to God's only son. So it's very dangerous for us to come to this God in his word as he's revealed his word through the scriptures, but yet not pray to him and intercede. Like, that's very dangerous, church. 
When we enter into God's presence and say, Father, make your name holy, he is changing our hearts, but he's also changing our minds as we continue in prayer and say, let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what's happening here? Well, according to Colossians 3, 2, as we come to his word, as we look up and gaze and, and we intercede, we, we, we meet him in prayer, our minds are being set on things above and not on things below. That's what he's doing. The result of this uh, is not that we're no earthly good because we're too heavenly minded, but rather the result of this is that the fog of our minds is being cleared away as we gaze upwards into the heavens and see his will more clearly. Now, you might be asking, what fog are you talking about? Well, the fog that gets put in our minds from the muck of life. Like people telling you you don't measure up. Business deals going wrong. Spouses giving each other the cold shoulder. Mamas in the hospital. Tense work situations. All these things matter, but with them, we all know they bring a fog that disorients us from seeing clearly. Prayer clears this fog and shows us God's will in order that we can navigate through these issues better. But not only is the fog lifted, we are better able to see what God is doing in the very midst of these situations. Like he reminds us in prayer of the end. When we pray to the God who is in eternity, we get a vision for what? Eternity. The Revelation 7 vision where every tribe and tongue is gathered around the throne singing praises to our God for eternity begins to flood our mind. And we are able to see this is where all of life is going. And if this is where all of life is headed, then my mind starts to be reoriented to understand all of the rest of things that are taking place now in how they relate to that. A change of mind is absolutely an effect. Prayer is effective to change our minds. When you think differently, you what? Act differently. That's right. Prayer is effectual. And as our minds are reminded of where things are headed and reoriented to understand all of life's circumstances in the here and now, as we, uh, as we gather that, that understanding, what happens? We will then engage God in prayer for his mission. You get that? heart's being changed, my mind's being reoriented, and now I'm coming to God in prayer for his mission on earth as it is in heaven. So I want you to think really quickly, I want you to think, how often do you pray missionally? Like how often do you pray for the unreached? How often do you personally pray for our missionaries? How often do you pray for your neighbors? How often do you pray for those you go to the gym with? Those that you work with? 
I can tell you this morning, I'm not asking these questions from a high place. I'm actually very ashamed of the amount of time that I spend in prayer over these type of things. God's mission, praying missionally. But church, it's right here in these things where God is at work. It's right here where the prayers that he answers will be answered forever. I want you to think about that. If my sister or my brother gets sick and I pray for their healing and God, by his grace, heals them, you know what's going to happen? They're going to get sick again. They're going to face death at some point. But when I pray for God to save my neighbor and he acts and he saves my neighbor, what has happened? He is saved for eternity. (laughs) You tell me what's the greater miracle. It's no comparison. You see, I don't believe that John Mark's mama housed the prayer gathering for the believers so that they should just get Peter back for a little while longer. Like, I believe that they prayed that God would keep him alive to keep furthering the work of Christ and his church. I mean, look, when Peter comes out, it's not like he goes in and spends time with all of these people. He says, hey and bye. (laughs) And then he's off to where God will take him and use him for the next few decades until God takes him home. And if my assumption about their prayers is true, then it's because prayer has already had an effect on these people's hearts and on their minds. And now we are entering into the reason that God has given us the gift of effectual prayer. This is the reason. God is not finite. God is infinite. He is working on things that will last forever. Are you with me? Working on things that will last forever, that will never fade. They won't, they won't stop. And it's so convicting because I just wonder, where is my mind work so hard at? Is it among the things that will pass and fade away? Is that where my energy and my prayers mostly are? Or like God, has he shaped my heart and my mind through prayer that I would be engaging in eternal things, storing up treasures Or they won't be destroyed. We desperately need our hearts changed and our minds reoriented to this truth every single day. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Someone brilliant said that prayer wasn't given to us so that we could call on our heavenly butler and make us to come and make us more comfortable for the short 80 years we have on this earth. Rather, it was given to us as a wartime walkie-talkie as people's eternity is at stake. Eternal souls is what this battle is all about. You know, this is not the only time that Peter has escaped death. Did you know that? In fact, this is not even 
Peter's greatest escape from death. Like if he wouldn't have come out of this prison, but yet he would have stayed and woke up the next morning and Herod would have chopped his head off, where would he have opened his eyes at? That's right. Gain, right? But early on in Peter's life, according to Jesus, Satan desired to sift Peter like wheat. But you know what happened to him then? Jesus prayed for him. And because Jesus prayed for him, he would live. So I want to ask you this question, church. Is the prayer of the Son of God effectual? You better believe it. And in the very same way today, Jesus is praying for you and he's praying for me. (laughs) We have a great high priest who is not like you and I. He doesn't get bored during prayer. He doesn't fall asleep during prayer. Rather, he faithfully prays for his own. (laughs) Praying that we would be kept from the evil one. Praying that his spirit would compel us to seek his kingdom first. Praying that his spirit would also compel us to pray for those who have yet to place their faith in him. To pray for those whose faith is hanging on by a thread. Jesus is praying for us to join him in this incredible privilege of prayer. (laughs) To his Father for the expansion of his kingdom. Church, don't waste your life. If your life is marked by prayerlessness, then you're wasting it. God has given us an incredible privilege, and you were made for such a time as this. You may think, I can't do anything. What can I do? You can go to the throne of the one who controls all things in the universe. Avail yourself to that privilege. Enter into prayer today. Aaron is going to come and help us respond to this truth today. The night before. (laughs) And... But, you know, I don't know how to add anything to what's been said because God has certainly spoken to me through this service from the beginning to the end. I mean, we have worship today. I feel God has been present in a very special way today. I feel like I've communed with him in worship. I feel like I've been ministered to in the word that Corey's brought us so powerfully. And... It just reminded me that God is sovereign, but he works through prayer. John Wesley said, 
God does nothing except in response to prayer. Now, we can debate that theologically. I know we've got a bunch of Reformed theologians in here that want to debate that statement. But contrast that with what God said in Psalms where he said, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Those seem in conflict with each other. Well, I can't resolve that conflict for you except to go back to what I preached on two Sundays ago about evangelism. Can you believe that God is saving his people, building his church through us? I can make this statement, God has saved no one except through other people. They challenge me on that. You say, well, what about the Bible? Well, he used men to write the Bible. You know, so I tell you, God is sovereign. And for some strange reason that we'll find out in heaven, just like for some strange reason, he chooses to bring his children into life eternal through us by our obedience to his command to go and make disciples. For some strange